0: Welcome to the Purposes of College Education podcast. Today, we continue our discussion on the role of community in higher education and how that might bolster or challenge our sense of duty. I am once again joined by two Yale students, E.J. Jarvis and Charlotte Burney. A higher education community typically brings students together early in their adult lives around the ages of 18 to 21. In the United States and many other countries, a large number of students move away from home to attend college or university, so they're joining a community away from the one that they grew up in. And unlike other levels of schooling, students typically make a fairly conscious choice about which college or university to attend rather than just attending the local school, although of course this varies across many different social groups. The United States in particular is a large country that industrialized relatively early and had a federal political system and a range of churches. These facts contributed to one of the distinctive features of the American higher education system, which is that the US has some 3000 colleges, many of which are residential and not all of which are in big cities. So here, more than in most countries, the idea of moving away to college and spending four years in a residential community is somewhat dominant. But in fact, of course, that's only one of the models of education, even in the United States. And many students live with their parents Or go to their local college community college or university or study part-time or at different stages of their lives residential colleges are relatively small communities in which students and teachers live in close proximity sharing facilities like a dining hall a library art spaces and science and computer labs they rely on tradition to pass on their identity ever since plato and ancient greece educational theorists have emphasized the role of the community in education Both the broader community that shapes the educational institution and the specific community of faculty and students who often live and interact together. Yale has a distinctive system of residential colleges. How much do you think it matters that your education at Yale has been residential? That means that you've lived for at least a couple of years in the residential colleges with other students. EJ?
1: I would say that my residential college has played an important role in my Yale experience. More so just the architecture and waking up every day and seeing what it means to be a Yale student. Uh, Living in Saybrook College, the views that you get with Harkness Tower right there, with the trees combining with the stone buildings right around you, it makes for a very eventful morning every
0: morning. Charlotte, how important do you think living in a residential college is for your sense of community?
2: I think my residential college has completely defined my Yale identity. My parents will often ask me, you know, what community at Yale I feel most affiliated to, and I always say Silliman. I met my first group of friends at Yale sitting on the Silliman Courtyard, and they invited me over to come sit with them, and that was two years ago now.
0: In this episode, we will turn to two modern thinkers, Henry David Thoreau and Mahatma Gandhi, who both explore the question of when the individual has a duty to resist the demands of his or her community and what kind of education is appropriate for people living in modern democracies. Relatedly, modern multicultural theory has been very important in allowing us to see how each of us belongs to multiple different communities. In looking at the role of community in education, let's ask whether education has a tendency to reorient one's sense of community and of duty. The 19th century American writer Henry David Thoreau asks when we have a duty to disobey our community or government, especially in the context of an unjust war, such as the Mexican-American War, or an unjust institution, such as slavery. I want to share Thoreau's views with you because he has one of the clearest notions of why the individual might have a duty that is at odds with his or her community, and also because he shows a very different model of education from Plato's. Instead of everyone living communally and fully in service to the state, he envisions each of us living off on our own and developing our wisdom and our individual consciences through solitary reading and perhaps conversations with our neighbours. Thoreau grew up in Concord, Massachusetts, which is the site of an early battle in the American Revolution in 1775, the shot heard round the world, as it came to be known. By the time Thoreau was living there in the early 19th century, Concord was a literary center for the American philosophy of transcendentalism and for writers who opposed slavery. He came from a relatively modest background. His father owned a small pencil-making factory, and Thoreau himself worked in the factory. Thoreau studied at Harvard, and after graduating, he worked as a schoolteacher. He seems to have been a person who was always ill at ease with social convention. For example, he quit one teaching job when he was required to administer corporal punishment to a student. From 1845 to 1847, he lived in a small hut that he built himself near Walden Pond not far from Concord. He tried to live simply and to be self-sufficient, growing his own food, not partaking of any luxuries, spending much of his time in reading and writing, essentially withdrawing from modern-day capitalism. This idea of a return to nature later inspired many modern environmentalists, and his book Walden remains an important guide for those who seek a simpler life, and criticize getting and spending in the modern economy. He passed a good deal of solitary time reading, and in fact he wrote that his residence was more favorable not only to thought, but to serious reading, than a university. In a sense, although he was college-educated, Thoreau stands for all the autodidacts who believe that reading on their own is more important than following the syllabus of a professor, and one has to admire him for that. Among the books he read, During this solitary time were the Iliad and the Bhagavad Gita, as well as the works of Confucius and many other ancient classics, and he developed an extremely powerful theory of the relationship between the individual and the community, in part out of the Asian works he read. While living in Walden, Thoreau was asked to pay some overdue taxes. He objected to paying taxes to a government that was then at war with Mexico in what he saw as an unjust war, which ultimately resulted in a vast expansion of US territory to include what are today. Texas, and California in the southwestern United States. He also opposed slavery, and he felt that the federal government was allowing it to continue in the South, even though there was by this time no slavery in his home state of Massachusetts. So he refused to pay his taxes, and he was kept in jail for one night until a friend or family member anonymously paid the taxes for him. And although he was only in jail for one night, this experience became the basis of his most famous short essay, On the Duty of Civil Disobedience. One of my duties as a school administrator is to make decisions and develop policies that impact the entire student body. Now you'll hear EJ's reaction to the Ivy League Collegiate Athletic Conference's decision to cancel sports seasons due to COVID.
1: I think the biggest reason why they reacted negatively was because the entire country was playing. You had individual teams cancel, but the fact that the Ivy League was so quick to make their decision, um,
0: it was unfortunate and I think it really messed up a lot of student-athletes' mental health. As you can see, the Ivy League had to balance various priorities in deciding how to respond to COVID. Unfortunately, this may have come at a cost to students' experience in college or to their sense of identity within the college community. In reading the Bhagavad Gita, Thoreau seems to have had more sympathy for Arjuna's reluctance to fight than for Krishna's arguments in favor of duty or dharma. But it seems to me that Thoreau's work reflects a notion of action that is at least in part inspired by the Bhagavad Gita. Now the Gita is a poem that tells a person who would rather not kill his cousins that he has to go into battle and kill them because it's a sacred duty. So it's a poem that favors action and favors violence. And yet the poem has been the inspiration for what seems like almost the opposite view, which is the theory of civil disobedience, the idea of passive resistance to injustice. Thoreau, who had decided to live in the woods in order to separate himself from all the unnecessary activity and busyness of a young capitalist society, admired Arjuna, who would prefer not to act. In his essay on civil disobedience, Thoreau famously writes that, "...under a government which imprisons any unjustly, the true place for a just man is also in prison." Interestingly, Thoreau also quotes here a famous Confucian statement that, "...if a state is governed by the principles of reason... Poverty and misery are subjects of shame. If a state is not governed by the principles of reason, riches and honors are subjects of shame. Thoreau develops out of his interpretation of Confucius this idea that we're all in a sense responsible for the unjust acts of our government so long as we do not resist those actions. And I believe he also develops out of his interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita an idea of inaction as a form of action. Essentially, Thoreau is saying that Arjuna should have rejected Krishna's advice, that the best form of action when faced with injustice is inaction, or at the very least, non-participation. But he also seems to believe in the Hindu notion of being detached from the fruits of your actions. He believes that to pay his taxes would be to participate in the injustice of his community. He refuses to pay his taxes, and he refuses to worry about the fruits of his action, the fact that he'll be imprisoned. This basic notion of civil disobedience is to refuse to participate in an unjust society and to accept the punishment that that society offers. Now, one could criticize Thoreau by pointing out that he only spent one night in jail and that a wealthy friend or relative paid his taxes for him. Nonetheless, his notion that we should refuse to participate in an unjust society inspired many later movements, including Gandhi's movement for Indian independence and Martin Luther King's movement for civil rights and his notion of self-reliance, of not allowing oneself to participate in what he also saw as an unjust economy, likewise had far-reaching consequences. In Civil Disobedience, Thoreau also offers a theory of modern democracy. He complains that in, in democratic societies, people are too willing to go along with the will of the majority, even when it is unjust. In this respect, he resembles Socrates, who taught what he thought was the truth, even though it meant being punished and ultimately put to death by the Athenian democracy. Thoreau summarizes his view of civil disobedience as follows. Unjust laws exist. Shall we be content to obey them? Or shall we endeavor to amend them and obey them until we have succeeded? Or shall we transgress them at once? And he answers that we should transgress the unjust laws immediately. We should just simply refuse to participate in an unjust society. He even envisions the breaking up of the United States, although this was more than a decade before the U.S. Civil War. Thoreau suggests that the individual has a duty to resist injustices committed by a modern democracy. He also has a notion of education as a mainly solitary pursuit. Thoreau's conception of conscious non-participation in evil seems to me to owe something to the Hindu theory of action as participation in the illusion of this world. Whereas Krishna says you must accept that this world is an illusion and you must act anyway, Thoreau says almost the opposite. I do not know what the outcome of my action will be, but I must not participate in an unjust social order. This, in turn, inspires later revolutionary figures like Mahatma Gandhi to a more collective notion of civil disobedience. Gandhi was one of the most influential thinkers and political activists of the 20th century. I'm sure you've heard his name before and can even recall his image or a quotation. He's known for his theory and practice of collective resistance to injustice. He may be less well known for his multicultural view of education, which we'll touch on later. Mohandas K. Gandhi grew up the son of a senior government minister in the small princely state of Porbandar in Gujarat on the western coast of India. He was later given the honorific name Mahatma, which means great soul. He studied law in London and moved as a young lawyer to South Africa, where he lived for over 20 years. Gandhi's first political actions took place in South Africa, where he organized a large immigrant Indian community to protest racial discrimination. He returned to India when he was already quite famous. There was a very active movement opposing British rule in India, and Gandhi quickly took a leading role in it. The British had gradually established their rule over India over four centuries. But at the beginning of the 20th century, there was a strong upsurge of anti-colonial nationalism in many countries in Asia and Africa. After more than three decades of struggle, Gandhi and the movement he led eventually managed to liberate India from British rule. But Gandhi was assassinated shortly after independence by a Hindu nationalist who opposed his efforts to cooperate with the Muslim community and other non-Hindus in the areas formerly ruled by the British, including modern Pakistan. Now, this idea of nationalism is one I would like to briefly discuss because it has to do with the modern notion of a community. You can see that Gandhi had one idea of nationalism, which he called self-rule or self-determination, Hind Swaraj while his assassin had a narrower and more exclusive notion of nationalism based on religious purity. Hindus, members of the dominant religion in India, have this shared set of stories that define their culture. Modern nationalism is an interesting concept that is related to but not identical with democracy. It's the idea that one has an especially close bond with other people of the same nationality, and that the rulers should in some way reflect the will of the nation. Now this might seem obvious to us, but in fact, it's historically rather strange. You can even ask yourself, what defines a given group of people as a nation? It might be their language, or their constitution, or some shared historical experience. But it's not just any one of these things. And we're increasingly familiar with multicultural nations, but in some periods of history, nations have been identified as those who shared a single culture, or ethnicity, or sometimes a single religion. I was born in Canada, but I'm a U.S. citizen. I became a U.S. citizen about 20 years ago after my kids were born. Uh, And I wondered, to what extent do you feel like the nation is a community that you belong to? How strongly do you feel connected to the United States?
2: When I was in high school, I went abroad and studied in South Africa, and I was at a school with You know, 200 students from all over the African continent. And then we were about 15 Americans studying there. And I definitely felt my American identity in that moment more than, you know, I normally do in the United States. I would say there are also ways in which I frown upon my American identity and the fact that, you know, there's a lot that's flawed with this country. uh, But I also think that there's a lot that's beautiful about it. So I think it's about finding that balance.
1: I would say that I'm connected to the United States more so on a regional standpoint. I think that I take a lot of pride in f- being from D.C. and from the mid-Atlantic region. And maybe some consider D.C. the northeast or some consider it the south. Um, who really knows? But I think the regional identity and the regional nationalism is something
0: that's really big in this country. Do you think that colleges have a duty to educate you as a citizen of the United States?
2: I think to a certain extent, yes, but I don't think it needs to be as clear-cut as you know teaching us the laws or how to pay taxes, but I think it can also be About learning ethics, how do you be a moral person in the United States? And I think it doesn't necessarily need to be centered around our sense of nationalism, but possibly just a sense of community as we've talked about.
1: And I think that duty comes with, especially at liberal schools like Yale, teaching them about the moral righteousness and the ethics aspect of life. Um, Unfortunately, college is a bubble. Um, All colleges are, I think. So when you hit that reality or the real world, as many college students are afraid to say, I think it's a little bit different because reality is not what we're often taught in college. We're taught the right things to do in college, but when you graduate, you have to do things to survive, and that might not always be the
0: right thing, quote-unquote. Now, the late 20th century, political scientist, Benedict Anderson, had an interesting way of analyzing nations as what he called imagined communities. Anderson was focused primarily on modern nations, but the points he makes also have some relevance for other communities that we might feel some allegiance or duty to. The Hindus may have considered themselves all part of the same religion, but they didn't think of themselves as a political unit until relatively recently. Anderson says that the modern nation is imagined as limited, because even the largest of them, China, for example, as he says, encompassing perhaps a billion living beings, has finite, if elastic, boundaries beyond which lie other nations. In other words, it wouldn't really make sense to say that the nation encompasses the entire world. As he writes, no nation imagines itself coterminous with mankind. He goes on to say that the nation is imagined as sovereign, that is, the source of political power, because the concept was born in an age, he writes, in which the Enlightenment and Revolution were destroying the legitimacy of the divinely ordained hierarchical dynastic realm. In other words, the ancient justifications of hierarchy were no longer acceptable in our modern world, and people started to believe that they, through their community, defined as a national community, should rule themselves. Finally, he writes... It is imagined as a community because regardless of the actual inequality and exploitation that may occur in each, the nation is always conceived as a deep horizontal comradeship. Everyone within the nation is imagined to be part of the same community, even a brother or sister. Now, not everyone accepts this idea of the nation, but nationality is remarkably powerful in modern times. Practically every part of the world defines itself as a nation with at least some of the features that Anderson mentions, and all the nations together form The United Nations, not the United World. Now, in Hind Swaraj, or Indian Self-Determination or Self-Rule, which he wrote while he was on a ship from London to South Africa after an unsuccessful political mission, Gandhi tried to offer a new vision of Indian nationalism that would grow out of the concept of duty or dharma from the Bhagavad Gita. In particular, he wanted his fellow Indian nationalists to see self-determination as a nation, as being closely linked to self-determination as an individual ethical being. He introduced the concept of nonviolence or passive resistance, which would be very important to his successful campaign for Indian independence. This is a sort of collective version of Thoreau's idea of civil disobedience. Instead of one man refusing to pay his taxes and spending a night in prison, it involves a whole nation refusing to pay unjust taxes, for example, taxes imposed by the British on Indian peasants during a famine. Or refusing to wear clothes manufactured in Britain, or to pay taxes on salt, or ultimately refusing to cooperate in any way with British rule. As Gandhi would later explain it An unjust law is itself a species of violence. Arrest for its breach is more so. Now, the law of nonviolence says that violence should be resisted not by counterviolence, but by nonviolence. This I do by breaking the law and by peacefully submitting to arrest and imprisonment. And that, of course, means that you have to go to prison. And Gandhi, in fact, was arrested and spent not one night in prison. He was arrested more than 10 times and spent several years in prison. And thousands of his followers were also arrested. But eventually they gained the sympathy of the world. And Gandhi was also very effective at making use of modern media. And the British realized that they could no longer rule India without the cooperation of the colonized people. Gandhi introduced this notion of passive resistance. He also emphasized the idea we've seen before of being detached from the fruits of action. Essentially, he said that even if violence could win independence more quickly, violence was wrong. And he insisted that he and his followers would act justly, whatever the consequences, to renounce the fruits of action, as he says, quoting the Bhagavad Gita in the passage, on the gospel of selfless action. Thus both Gandhi and Thoreau think about action as a kind of magnificent inaction, or passivity, or refusal to participate, and a nonviolence. Gandhi himself says that this approach is a marriage of the Bhagavad Gita in Christianity. and Christianity. I think the genius of this approach is that inaction, or passive action, becomes a form of action where, when no right action is possible. It's a paradox, as I say, of an action that is passive and the power that comes from nonviolence, the refusal to participate in injustice, which is an interesting mirror image of what happens between Krishna and Arjuna, almost as if Gandhi had stood the Bhagavad Gita on its head. Now, we saw that Thoreau's emphasis on self-reliance led him to a somewhat individualistic notion of education as the solitary conversation with the great writers of all cultures of the past, sitting alone there in his cabin on Walton Pond. Just as Gandhi has a more collective notion of civil disobedience, he also offers us a more collective version of what we might call a multicultural ideal of education. He created two different schools and an ashram, or religious retreat, that emphasized the skills needed for national self-reliance, but they also taught Indian history and ethics. For higher education, he embraced the notion of liberal education as an ethical education that allows people to understand their duty. One aspect of this that has always impressed me is that while Gandhi wanted his people to learn Sanskrit, the ancient religious language of India, and to be familiar with Indian culture, he also encouraged the study of all cultures, including that of the British whose rule over India he opposed. Asked about the relevance of the study of English literature for Indians, he encouraged his people to study both English and their native languages, and he wrote, I do not want my house to be walled in on all sides and my windows to be stuffed. I want the cultures of all the lands to be blown about my house as freely as possible. But I refuse to be blown off my feet by any. Gandhi was writing during the era of decolonization and the founding after the Second World War of the United Nations. And his vision for the future involves national self-determination. But it's not narrowly nationalist. Instead, he imagines an Indian education that also embraces the cultures of the world. communal education can be a very effective way of creating a sense of bonds and also what we call in modern educational theory the peer effect, where you learn from others of roughly your own age but of diverse backgrounds. There are many organizations and programs at Yale that foster peer-to-peer learning and mentorship. E.J. shares his duties as part of one of these groups. So the Student Athlete Mentor Program, or SAMS as it's commonly
1: known as, was started my sophomore year uh, 2020, 2021, it was implemented by uh, Jesse Hill of Benjamin Franklin, and she wanted to help ease their transition into the collegiate sports and academic life. From there, I had weekly meetings, check-ins, just to ensure that everything was going smoothly. If their grades weren't as good as they needed to be, then I would give them recommendations how to move forward, whether that be talking to professors, uh, scheduling appointments with writing tutors, or going to their dean to ask for extensions, or simply just to talk with their dean about how they can do better in school. Um, I also gave them advice on how to manage time, how to manage their time while they were on away trips, whether that be studying on the bus or plane, or how to
0: organize your schedule so it works best for you. Now that we have reviewed both Thoreau and Gandhi, Let's see where they overlap and where they differ. Both Gandhi and Thoreau think about action as a kind of magnificent inaction or passivity or refusal to participate, accompanied by nonviolence. Gandhi himself says this approach is a marriage of the Bhagavad Gita and Christianity. I think the genius of this approach is that when political action is stymied, inaction or passive action can become its own form of action. This is a paradox, as I say, of an action that is passive and power that comes from nonviolence and the refusal to participate in injustice. It's an interesting mirror image of what happens between Krishna and Arjuna, almost as if Gandhi had stood the Bhagavad Gita on its head. We find in both Thoreau and Gandhi an idea of a universal duty regardless of your place in the social order. And perhaps both Thoreau and Gandhi promote a duty to disobey Now I'm not saying you should go out and rebel and revolt for no reason, but it may be a productive exercise to consider the role you play in your community and reflect on conflicting duties you may have for and against social expectations. Now, what about education? Thoreau emphasizes self-reliance, and this led him to a somewhat individualistic notion of education as a solitary conversation with the great writers of all cultures of the past. Gandhi has a more collective notion of civil disobedience and he also offers a more collective version of what we might call a multicultural ideal of education. Community is a word that we tend to use mostly in a positive way and we can see that many great educational theorists have emphasized the benefits of a communal form of education. But if we think about community uncritically we may tend towards conformity. A modern community of learning engages with diverse perspectives and encourages students to explore their own notions of duty, even if, at times, that puts them at odds with the norms of the broader community. This podcast was produced by Belinda Platt with the help of research associate Lizzie Krontierus and sound engineer Ryan McAvoy. I'd like to thank my guests, E.J. Jarvis and Charlotte Burney. Join us again next time to explore another purpose of college education.